Destiny Image presents A Journey to Hell, Heaven, and Back Written by Ivan Tuttle Narrated by William Crockett Chapter 1 Denial It was February 1978, and Grand Rapids, Michigan was very cold. There seemed to be an unusual amount of snow that month. We just experienced one of the worst winter snowstorms in Grand Rapids history only a few weeks earlier, and it seemed like the snow just wasn't going to let up. I was working selling Oldsmobiles and Hondas at a car dealership there in Michigan. It was Thursday, and I couldn't wait to get off of work and head to the bars. But first, I needed to go home and smoke a joint. I remember being restless that night because my left leg was bothering me. I thought it was just tight, or maybe I had pulled a calf muscle, so I tried stretching it out. About 8.30 p.m., I headed to the nightclub. I found a few ladies to dance with, but by 11, my leg was throbbing so badly that I sat down and didn't dance anymore. I left around midnight, two hours earlier than usual, and by myself. Friday morning, around 7.30 a.m., I woke up to more pain in my left calf. I wondered when the muscle cramp was ever going to relax so that it didn't hurt so badly. Even though I was in a lot of pain, I decided to go into work because I needed a few more sales so I could have more party money for the next few weeks. But my leg was hurting so badly that I couldn't make a sale. As the pain became more intense, I finally left work to go home and lied down with my feet elevated. My leg felt better in that position. That evening, I went back to the nightclub with some friends. But no matter how stoned I got that night, my leg was killing me and I wasn't much fun. I declined dancing with any of the ladies who asked me to, telling them, my old football injury is acting up, and it's too difficult to dance. I received great sympathy points from the girls that night. Several of them brought me drinks and sat at my table talking with me, but it was difficult holding a conversation with them with all the pain in my leg. I left around midnight and drove straight home. I awoke in severe pain around 7.30 the next morning. What a horrible day this is going to be, I thought. That's when I decided it was time to see a doctor. So I took a shower, got dressed, and started calling around to see if there was a doctor available to see me. I finally found one that was open on Saturdays, and he told me to come on in. Around 9.30 a.m., I arrived at the doctor's office and filled out all the required paperwork. The doctor seemed like a nice guy. Well, Mr. Tuttle, what seems to be your problem? The doctor asked, while looking at the paperwork I had filled out. Before I could respond, though, he continued, Oh, I see. You're having charley horses or leg cramps in your left calf. How old are you? He asked. I'm 26, almost 27, I answered. Well, drop your pants so I can have a look at it, the doctor said. I dropped my pants, and the doctor blurted out, That leg is really swollen. Then the doctor had me lie flat on my back, on his little exam table, while he poked at my leg, 
took measurements of both calves, listened with his stethoscope to something in both legs, and then stood up straight and said, I think you have thrombophlebitis. It's a blood clot deep within the calf of the leg, and it causes swelling like this. How old are you again? I told him, and he asked me, Do you smoke a lot of cigarettes? I replied, I smoke a pack or two a day, depending on how many customers I have to wait on. The conversation then turned quite serious, as the doctor explained to me what could happen if I didn't receive treatment for the thrombophlebitis right away. He even called the hospital for me and told them I would be coming right over. But I had other ideas as I wasn't ready yet to do that. I left the doctor's office thinking that blood clots were for old people, not someone my age. I thought that maybe if I just elevated my leg for the rest of the weekend, it would go away. So I bypassed the hospital and went straight home. There I took a couple of pillows from the bedroom into the living room and propped my leg up on the sofa and sat back and watched TV all day. A young lady I knew named Jennifer came over and helped take care of me that evening. But the pain continued for several days. One morning a few days later, the throbbing woke me up around 5 a.m., and it hurt worse than ever before. Every time my heart would beat, it felt like my leg was going to explode. I couldn't fall back to sleep. I still went to work that day, but by lunchtime I knew I had to do something about it, and soon. Chapter 2 Back to My Childhood so how had I gotten this far off course in my life and in my walk with the Lord? You see, when I was a kid around eight years old, I accepted Jesus into my life and got baptized shortly after that. Then when I was ten years old, I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. All through my preteen and teenage years, I tried to serve the Lord. Back then, I was made fun of sometimes because of it, but I did have my friends at church so that made things better at times. One of my best friends at church during those years was Nick Tavani. Nick was one of the smartest people I knew, plus he played the piano. Nick became president of our CA, Christ Ambassadors Group. The CA was a group of teenagers from our church in Forestville, Maryland, which was an Assemblies of God church. Nick accepted me, and I guess you could say he didn't judge me the way some other kids did. Oh, he might have thought I was odd, but he still accepted me. I looked up to Nick and his family. They had a great walk with the Lord, and Nick was so talented and smart. Nick often helped me understand things in my life that I was unaware of in my small world. You see, my childhood wasn't the best. I had a father who beat me a lot, but I also had a mother who loved me and prayed for me daily. My father was a bricklayer, a big and strong man who worked all the time trying to get ahead in life. He would work as many as three different jobs at the same time to make sure we had food on the table and a roof over our heads. As a bricklayer, he would work his regular eight to ten hour days, then come home, shower, and go do a side job. Additionally, every Thursday night he would go to the local supermarket and mop their floors. I had three sisters and one brother. As a kid, I would sit in class and watch the teacher as she taught us stuff so slowly 
that it felt like I was watching paint dry. So I would look out the window of my class and dream about being in the woods across the playground. I would dream about being Davy Crockett or Daniel Boone, but the problem was I was in the classroom. My mind was so active with thought. I have since been diagnosed as ADHD, but back then they didn't know about ADHD, so I was just considered a bad kid. When the teacher would notice that I was looking out the window and fidgeting around in my chair, she would ask me a question about whatever subject we were doing, and I had no idea what she was talking about. This got me sent to the principal's office a lot. Everything was just too slow for me. I didn't try to be bad. I always tried to do the right thing. I just lost interest in things quickly and wanted to know what's next. I just couldn't help it. I hated school and wanted to go play out in the woods, anything but sit there in class. This behavior was also displayed at home, where the consequences were much worse. At school, the worst thing that could happen was the principal would use the paddle on me. She had broken a few of them on me before, but she only swatted me three times at the most. At home, it was much worse because my father would beat me with a belt. Remember, he was a big, strong man, a bricklayer. He knew how to swing that belt, and 15 to 20 lashes was common. Most of my childhood, I had welts all over my behind, my legs, and my back, and sometimes the welts would bleed. My father had such anger toward me. I eventually found out why, and I'll explain later in the book. Some days he would come home from work, and if I did not get out before he came home, he would beat me with the belt asking me, What did you do wrong today? I know you did something. What was it? I finally got wise to that, and as soon as I saw him take his belt off, I made up stuff that I had done wrong, just so my dad would stop beating me so much. If I waited until he started beating me, I might get 10 or 15 whacks with the belt and then admit to something and get 10 or 15 more whacks with the belt. But if I just made something up, he would only hit me about 15 to 20 times. To make matters worse for me as a kid, I had been born with a deformed left hand and arm. So not only did I get abuse from my dad, but at school, most of the kids made fun of me, and it seemed like someone always wanted to beat me up or start a fight with me after school. I was not a violent kid, but I quickly got tired of kids hitting me and making fun of me, so I stood up to them. I may have been skinny, but I was really strong. I hated fighting because it reminded me of my dad and how it felt to get beaten, so I tried everything to get out of a fight, but when I had no choice, I wasn't going to lose. You see, if I lost a fight and my dad found out about it, he would whip me so hard and tell me I wasn't man enough and other hurtful things like that. When I was just nine years old, one day right after school on the playground, I punched a kid in a fight so hard it knocked him out. I thought I killed him because his eyes rolled back in his head and he just went down like a limp dish rag. I was scared and took off running fast. I ran to my house about a half mile away and told my mother what happened, how this kid had started a fight with me, and how I hit him, and I thought I killed him. 
My mother grabbed her keys, and we got in the car, and she drove as fast as she could back to my school. When we got there, the school nurse was just bringing this kid around with smelling salts. Thank God I didn't kill him. He was only knocked out. For a few weeks after that fight, no kids picked on me because they were afraid that I would knock them out too. Finally, I enjoyed a few weeks of peace in my life, no one to fight, and I could walk home without fear. This bear is repeating, I really didn't want to fight and never started a fight in my life. I always made the other person swing at me or hit me first, with just one exception. There was one time I was egged on to starting a fight with a kid from across the street. I sucker punched him and he wouldn't fight. I felt so bad and ran home, up to my room, and started crying. Later that day, I went over to his house and apologized to him and asked for his forgiveness. I couldn't believe that I actually hit a kid for no reason. As far as I was concerned, I was no better than my father after doing that. During junior high school, I did not dress out for P.E. a lot because I was so embarrassed about the welts all over my back and legs. I didn't want all the other kids thinking I was a bad person, so I hid this very well throughout 7th and 8th grade. Then one day when I was 14, I finally stood up to my dad, and he quit beating me. I can remember the day very well. It was a rainy Sunday morning, late in November, and I just happened to walk downstairs at the wrong time. My father was upset because there was not enough wood in the wood box by the fireplace for his liking. He was standing in our family room next to the fireplace, so he saw me when I reached the bottom of the steps coming into the room. He said something about getting more wood in the firewood box, but I didn't know he was talking to me. My dad called me over to him and slapped me right across the face, and it nearly knocked me out. As I was falling back from the hit, I could hear my father yelling at me about putting some wood in the box. After I hit the floor and started to regain myself, I told him that I was in my church clothes and asked him if I could get more wood after church. This just upset him all the more that I would try to reason with him. After all, no one ever questioned him. He wanted more pieces of wood in the firewood box right then and there and expected my immediate obedience at his command. Next thing I knew, my dad had picked me up in the air with one hand as he hit me in the chest with his other hand. It knocked the breath out of me and stunned me for a few moments. As I got up this time, I was very mad and had had enough. I shook my fist at my father and said, You hit me one more time and I will kill you. I can picture my father's face right now as it went from anger to laughter. It started with a small little grin, then went to a little bit of a chuckle, and then grew to an all-out hearty laugh. So you are going to take me on? My father asked with a huge smile across his face. I said, yes, I am not going to let you keep hitting me like this anymore. I would rather die trying than to allow you to keep hitting me. The next thing I knew, he walked away and said, go to church. After that, my father never laid a hand on me again. High school was really different for me. I was rather timid back then and kept mostly to myself, 
though I did allow a few kids from church to get a little close to me, I became so shy in my high school years that I only talked to a few people in school. I did have a girlfriend, and back in the 60s, holding hands was a big deal, and to kiss a girl was about as far as you would ever go out of respect for her, and because you knew anything further was wrong. My puppy love didn't last long, but it was my first, and I have great, clean memories. Don't get me wrong, I wasn't a perfect kid back then. Actually, I was pretty messed up. With all that my father put me through, and the harassment from other kids, and all the teachers and adults thinking I was a bad kid growing up, I was very insecure. I made a lot of mistakes, and never really knew what was the right thing to do in many situations. I was always afraid that I wasn't smart enough to be around anyone my age or older. I believed there was something wrong with me because even my own father rejected me as a child. I didn't find out until my early 20s that I actually have a pretty high IQ of 136. Because I was pretty much a loner in high school, I used to listen to music a lot. I could sing pretty well, but was too shy to get up in front of people by myself. However, I enjoyed singing in the church and the school choir. Even though I was made fun of in high school, I still loved my music. Music was something that I didn't just hear. I felt it, too. I loved music. After high school, I went to a very small Bible college up in Maine. I didn't have the money to attend, but I was accepted anyway, and they allowed me to earn my way through by working for them on their farm. Someone had given the college a dairy farm, and the first thing that needed to be done was to clean out the stalls. Wow, that was not fun. But I enjoyed going to college there. I was taught about public speaking by the president of the college. I can remember him calling me out in class and having me say the word Obadiah. He made me stand up and say it out loud. I had to fill the whole room up with my voice. Now, as I said earlier, I was very shy back then and afraid to speak in public. But I loved the Lord and wanted to preach. Our instructor worked with me, and within a few weeks, I was over my fear and ready to preach. This school had connections with churches all over Maine that would allow students to preach. I went to one church outside of Bangor, Maine, and stayed there with the pastor and his wife during a Thanksgiving break. I was there to work for my stay, which meant I got to preach. My first sermon I ever got to preach was on Romans 12, verse 20. Quote, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. End quote. This was an old church, and the platform was made of hardwood with no carpeting on it, and underneath it, it was hollow, very hollow. Every step you took on it echoed throughout the building. I was very nervous, as I was only 18 years old, and it was my first time being responsible to preach. So I kind of rocked back and forth, tapping my feet a lot while I was preaching, and I guess that made more noise than my preaching. I had someone come up to me after the service and tell me next time to try to keep my feet still so they could hear the sermon. I was embarrassed. 
But it didn't stop me. I loved the Lord so much back then. Then on one trip home, I met a girl who got my attention quick. She was not a Christian, but she was so darn cute. We fell in love, or what I thought was love, within my two-week stay at home, and she begged me not to leave her to go back to college. She convinced me I could make better money doing something other than preaching. She thought I would be perfect for sales, and she got me a job at the GEM, Government Employee Membership Store, where she worked in the pharmacy. To make a long story short, that is why I left college, and that was when I slipped up and walked away from the Lord. Boy, when I make a mistake, I usually make a big one. Chapter 3 Blood Clot Now back to 1978 and my problem at hand. My health wasn't in the best condition because I would stay up for days on end, partying, using different drugs to keep me awake. I knew I had a problem with my left leg that needed to be taken care of, but I hated going to a doctor's office and questioned what was really wrong with my leg. Were they going to operate on it? How would they get the blood clot out if there was one? The first doctor I went to had wanted me to go to the hospital right away as he thought I had thrombophlebitis, a deep blood clot in the calf of the leg. I didn't take his advice to go to the hospital because I wanted to keep partying. I was young and invincible, right? So I kept up my lifestyle for a few more days until it got so bad that I couldn't walk, sit, or sleep because of the pain and swelling. Finally, I went to the emergency room. That night, they did some tests on me, measured both legs, and believed I had a pretty good-sized blood clot in my left leg, and I had to be hospitalized right away. There I was, only 26 years old, and I had something that my grandfather should have. I had nothing but questions. How do they fix this problem? Do they operate on me or what? Finally, a doctor told me that he indeed believed that I had a blood clot on my leg and that it needed to be treated right away or I could die from it. First, they were going to put me in a room and try to stabilize my blood from being so thick, and in order to do that, I would need to be off my feet for a few days. Part of the process required them to put me on blood thinners and other medications to thin out my blood and get the swelling down. I thought, great, they will fix it in a day or two and send me back home. After all, I still had some partying to do. Not so fast. The doctors checked me into the hospital, but right away there was a problem. I'm highly allergic to iodine, the substance used in the IVP dye they needed to inject me with to look at the clot in my leg. There was a new doctor of radioactive treatments at the hospital, and he thought of another way to see the blockage. He wanted to do a radioactive retrograde uptake on me, something innovative back in 1978. At that time, the ultrasound wasn't perfected enough to look for blood clots in your legs. They took me into this room where they had this big, round piece of equipment, about three feet in diameter that had two supporting arms holding it up in the air and a table positioned under it. 
They were able to move this around with ease like a robot. They laid me down on the table beneath this machine and injected my right leg with this radioactive serum, and they moved this big, round device over my leg as they watched behind some type of monitor. I could see the monitor, and all I saw were hundreds of little dots moving up what must have been my leg. Then they injected it into my left leg. This time, as I watched the monitor, I didn't see near as many dots going up my leg. The doctors talked amongst themselves, and then let me know that I definitely had a blood clot, and the best treatment for me was to remain in bed while they thinned my blood out. I needed to wear some kind of stocking-type material on my right leg, the one without the clot, in order to equal out the pressure in my legs so my blood would flow better. They wheeled me into my room, put me in bed, and then put this stocking-type thing on my leg, put an IV in me, shot me full of some stuff, and instructed me that I couldn't get out of bed for any reason. There I was, only 26 years old, full of life, Mr. Party Man, and I had to stay in bed. Talk about being depressed. After about an hour lying in bed, I had to use the restroom. I pressed the red little buzzer button, and a nurse came into the room and asked, What can I do for you? I let her know I had to use the restroom, and she said, Number one or number two? I about died laughing when she asked me that. I thought, do I look like I am five years old? I told her number two, and she said, Wait right there, I'll be right back. She came back in the room with a little bedpan, handed it to me with a roll of toilet paper, pulled the curtain around my bed, and said, Buzz me when you're finished. Right, I'm going to do what in this pan, and then have you come back in this nice-smelling room to take this from me, like it's some kind of gift or something? Needless to say, I had a lot of growing up to do in a very short time. Being in a hospital at 26 and not to being able to get out of bed opened me up to a lot of new challenges. I will say that the nurses and volunteers were some of the nicest people I had ever met and were extremely helpful. A couple of them were even downright cute. I went through a lot of embarrassing moments during my stay, like the bedpan issue and then having to get bathed in bed by strangers. I wasn't sure if I was being treated like a baby or like an elderly nursing home patient. Being a smoker at the time, I needed a cigarette, and I couldn't get my friends to come into the hospital to bring me any. Some friends. After about eight hours of no cigarettes, I was going crazy. So whenever someone walked past my door, I would ask them if they had any cigarettes. Finally, one guy did, and he brought one into my room. I lit it up and took in a couple of deep drags before the nurse came in my room and read me the right act about my room being a non-smoking room. Back in the 70s, there were smoking and non-smoking rooms in hospitals, restaurants, airplanes, and just about any place else that was public. I asked her to please change my room, and she argued, the doctor wanted you in a non-smoking room because he believes smoking causes blood clots. I begged her to please put me in a smoking room. I can't get out of bed or anything else, and I can't smoke, and you don't want to see me get like I get when I can't have a cigarette. 
I really felt like I was in prison at the time. Couldn't do this, couldn't do that. I was pleasantly surprised when she came back in my room and told me that she was moving me down the hall to a smoking room. I was happy. Every day, the nurses would come into my room first thing in the morning and check my vital signs, give me a shot of heparin, a blood thinner, and then within about 30 minutes or so, I would get my breakfast, or what was supposed to be breakfast. Two weeks after I arrived, with no drugs or alcohol for those two weeks, I was finally getting released from the hospital. I couldn't wait to get home and light up a joint. They released me about four in the afternoon, and I got home about five. The first thing I did was light up a joint and smoked it. After that, I got something to eat and watched some TV, then smoked some more pot, and around nine that night, I felt tired and went to bed. My new girlfriend at the time, Jennifer, was staying there with me while I recovered, and she wondered why I was going to bed so early. But for some reason, I was exhausted that night and had to go to bed. Usually, I stayed up till at least midnight most of the time. Chapter 4 Going to Hell Around 9.20 that night, I was woken up by something or someone grabbing my left wrist and holding on to it very tight, pulling me right up out of my body. I turned around to see my lifeless body just lying there. I was shocked and kept trying to break free from this horrible thing. I even tried to turn the light on in the room to no avail. My hand went right through the wall. This thing had a death grip on my wrist, and I could not get free. I looked around at everything in the room, just trying to think of a way to escape, when all of a sudden, we started to move through space and time into this horrible darkness. We moved so fast that time didn't matter, and where it took me was the most horrific place I had ever seen, heard, or smelled. I could hear people screaming. At first, the sound was way off in the distance, but within seconds, the screams were so loud, it was as if they were coming from right beside me. The shrieks were beyond anything I have ever heard before, and the stench was indescribably repulsive. The sense of hopelessness I felt in this place was totally overwhelming. The realization finally hit me that I was in hell. No, this was not a dream, and it was not a drug-induced hallucination. I was dead, and I was in hell. All hope and expectation of life was gone. The evil spirit that had hold of me had begun laughing at me. It was incredibly grotesque-looking and had the strength of a hundred men. As I heard the screams and shrieks of the people there, I could feel their pain in a way considerably beyond what we typically feel here on earth. Our earthly minds and bodies cannot begin to understand or exist with that type of pain. The heat there became unbearable, although I didn't ever see actual flames. Why was I in hell? And, I thought, what did I do to deserve this? I was a pretty good kid, and I even went to Bible college for a little while. I didn't hurt anyone or kill anybody. So why was I in hell? Then I realized that the answers didn't really matter, 
because I knew there was no escape and I was trapped there forever. And I do mean forever. At first, I didn't realize that I was still moving down toward the center of hell. I wasn't quite there yet. I had only been on the outskirts of hell. All the while, the demon continued to laugh at me with the most hideous sound my ears had ever heard. It was even worse than the deep, echoing demon voices in the movies. As this demon took me deeper into hell, the smell got so terrible that it permeated my whole being, and the sounds of people screaming literally pierced my being. However, I still tried fighting this evil spirit that had me, and I was screaming like the rest of the people there. I could still feel that insufferable heat coming up from below me, too. Though words seem utterly inadequate in trying to explain this experience, I will try my best to convey to you the hopelessness and horrifying feelings one has when they're in hell. People were all around me. I bumped into some, and they were screaming as loud as they could and cursing God and yelling at me to please tell their children or other loved ones that hell is for real. They knew it was useless, yet they still screamed and cried out in pain. The pain and anguish there is beyond any suffering you have ever known. It literally engulfs your whole being, kind of like the worst toothache or headache you have ever had times a thousand, and it is throughout your whole being. Imagine falling from an airplane at 35,000 feet up, and you have no parachute and nothing but concrete below to land on. You know you're going to die. Well, that hopeless feeling you have going all the way down to certain death, that is what hell is like times 10,000. There is so much more I could tell you about hell, more ways to try and describe the despair, agony, and suffering. But what it all comes down to is this. Just understand, once you are in hell, it is too late to ask God into your life. It's too late to change your ways or to send a message to others about how awful hell really is. Trust me, you are not going to be running around with your pals partying in hell. You are going to be in total darkness and hopelessness with no chance for escape. This heinous thing that had a hold of me was taking me further down, and as I felt the heat getting hotter, I began to scream as loud as I could. I cried out to God, but felt it didn't matter. I thought he wouldn't answer my prayers now that I was dead. I'd had that choice while I was alive. Nothing I could do had any meaning now. I was nothing and felt nothing but complete hopelessness. It was dark and frightening. People were still yelling at me as I passed by them. They screamed, Get me out of here, please. Most seemed to be locked in place by something unseen. It was too dark for me to tell, but as I moved past them, I could see that they could not move. They just grabbed me and tried desperately to hold on to me. In this state of being, you don't have a body of the type you had when you were alive in your earthly body but you do have a body. It's difficult to explain in words. You feel pain, and you see and hear everything with perfect vision and hearing. 
but the pain in hell is unbelievably worse than anything on earth. At least with earthly pain, when it gets too bad, you can pass out and escape from it, but not in hell. If you get a cut in the flesh, it only hurts where you got cut. But in hell, if you cut your finger, it hurts throughout your whole being. I'm sure I have not adequately described the creatures in hell, what they looked like, smelled like, and what they did. There were some creatures that were very big, about 10 or 12 feet tall, and they were very grotesque with rotted flesh and a smell that matched. Many of them had long, disfigured arms and legs, and they were so strong that they could rip you in half. There were others that seemed to just slither around like huge snakes. I could see many of them going to the center of hell and heading back to earth. I assumed that they were being instructed on what to do by Satan himself, and they were returning to earth to do it. Some of these beasts were creatures of deception. They would go and enter a body in order to possess it. Usually that would be a very pretty woman or handsome man who then would entice someone to have sex with them. These same demonic spirits would also get people to believe in things like fortune-telling, horoscopes, mind-reading, etc. These evil spirits would actually work in people with these gifts, though in actuality they were really just well-playing guesses as they have had thousands of years to learn all about people. The twists and turns these demon spirits would do to people and the lies they led them to believe were purposefully deceptive. There are millions of types of demons of numerous sizes, shapes, and assignments, but they all have the same overall mission, and that is to destroy your relationship with God any possible way they can. They can come to you in the form of just about anything here on earth, but make no mistake about it, they are here. People do not realize that many things on earth have demonic beginnings, like stories about vampires, werewolves, white magic, witches, trolls, and ogres. Even the movies where they are supposed to be good witches and warlocks that fight evil come from a demonic background as well. You should also know that video games that have extreme violence, murder, extra lives when you battle evil forces, and the like, all have a demonic presence in them. I don't understand why people are so blind to this today, but that too is a trick of the devil. There is no doubt in my mind that some people will get this far in my book and stop listening to it because it will offend them or they will think I am crazy. And that is what the devil would want so that he can continue to deceive and control people. Parents, wake up. This happened to me back in 1978 and I was able to see these types of games before they were ever even invented or released. There is no time after you die. It is forever, and you are leading your children straight to hell by letting them play these games. Just look back at kids from the 60s and 70s, and then look at the kids in the 80s and 90s, and you can see the difference. Now look at the kids today. There is very little communication with them. They are always playing these games and ignoring their parents. You go to church, and your children do too, 
and they seem like good kids. But there is a deep, dark side you do not know about your own children when you allow them access to these things. I understand your kids keep telling you that everyone else does it, and so-and-so allows their kids to do it, but that still doesn't make it all right. Even if the pastor's kids at your church are allowed to play those games or watch those movies, it's still opening up a doorway for demonic powers to enter your home and your children. In hell, there was talk about how the demons were going to rob, steal, and destroy parents' relationships with their children. They planned to do it with books, videos, games, music, teachers, and even at times our own government will help. Demons can do things we as humans can't do, so surround your children with prayers on a daily basis. Some of you might think this is strange, but it is so important to pray over your children and plead the blood of Jesus over them, because nothing the devil has ever come up with can penetrate the blood of Jesus. Think of it like this. Back when the Israelites were in Egypt and the death angel was sent to kill all of the firstborn, if you had lamb's blood on your doorposts, the angel of death could not harm you. Jesus is the Lamb of God, and His blood was shed for all of us, and by speaking the name of Jesus, pleading the blood of Jesus over your children, you keep the demonic forces from your children. But that is not all you need to do. You need to get rid of those books, CDs, videos, and games, etc., or you are inviting the demons back into your house. As parents, you must do your best to keep your children away from those types of entertainment. One more thing I would like to add. You can't let your guard down as a parent for any reason nowadays. You have to be vigilant. I saw how the demons were using amusement parks and their characters to deceive children to take them into darker places. Children will be sucked into the occult through magic, or what has been called magic, but is just demonic. Waving a magic wand to make something happen is not how God works. Protect your child's mind, heart, soul, and spirit. Children's movies from these places are horrible. They are filled with a demonic theme and presence. Wake up. Stop thinking it's just a make-believe. It's not. It's demonic. These things I have seen with my own eyes and have experienced firsthand. Hell is real. Make no mistake about it. And you are going there unless you ask Jesus into your life. Hell is not something to play with. There I was, trapped for all eternity, never to escape. I saw so many people there who never thought they would end up in hell. These were good people. Some were even former pastors of churches, deacons, Sunday school teachers, some familiar men and women from our past. Very good people, but they were doomed to hell forever. I did not get to ask them how they got there. I was too worried about why I was there and how I was going to handle all this torture and where the demon was taking me. I heard more screams and more people crying out, and I knew for sure I was going into the pit of hell and that I could never return. I just wish I could get through to you what that felt like. It's kind of like that dream you have when you are just about asleep 
or just nodded off, and all of a sudden you feel like you are falling. Well, it's like that, except you don't wake up and shake it off. You just keep falling and falling and falling. There is no end to it, or the torture you are put through, the sounds and the smell. The smell is worse than rotted garbage and the worst sewer odor you could imagine, all combined with the smell of sulfur. I knew then with certainty I was going to just be tortured and burn in hell forever. I was getting closer to where this demon wanted to take me. I could finally see the devil from a distance. He was not what you might picture him to be. He was actually a bright shining light and was very beautiful, but I could feel the evil that he emitted. I did not see the typical portrayed horns or a long tail. He was actually very good looking, and I think that is why he is able to fool so many people. He only appears to people on earth who are very important to him so that he can win them over. If he were gross and grotesque like the demons, everyone would run from him. So many people have been fooled by him and his lies, including me. I believe the lie that marijuana was good for you because God put it on the earth. Well, God may have put it on earth, but not for the purpose we are using it for. He also made cyanide, but if we were to use it wrong, it will kill us. Some things kill the body, and those things are bad, but what kills your spirit is even worse. Chapter 5 More of Hell There are things in hell that are hard to explain and even harder to describe. Once down there, it is very dark, yet you can still see because you are not using your fleshly or earthly eyes, but your spiritual ones. People down there seem to be chained up in little areas, but there were no bars or walls to prohibit them from moving. They just couldn't get out of their assigned areas. While going through hell, I met several people or souls down there as I was moving past them. Some were just everyday, ordinary people, just like you and me, and some were mighty people at one time, including preachers. Many people screamed or yelled at me in hell. As soon as I saw these people, in less than a second, I knew their stories. The way people communicated in hell was like talking without saying anything, but I heard them clear as a bell. The demonic beast that had a hold of me slowed down so I could hear these stories, and I was allowed to actually talk to several people in hell. Maybe the reason was so I could think, now there isn't any hope of ever getting out. These people didn't seem to deserve hell, so if they couldn't get out, then I had no hope either. One man's name was Reverend James Wolfe. He was from England, at least 100 or more years ago, from what I gathered. James told me that he regretted his sins, and he asked me to tell God he was sorry for molesting those little girls. He also regretted cheating people out of food at a local market. He stole food from there and never got caught. He read his Bible every day and prayed for people when asked but he couldn't stop himself from doing those things. He never thought it mattered that much. No one was hurt, he thought. 
Now he knows that's not true, and that what he did was wrong. He hated hell. I met a girl named Mary, who was only 18 when she died, and she couldn't understand why she was in hell. She never really believed in God, heaven, or hell, but she does now. Mary said she was in college and was driving home for Christmas break from college when she got hit head-on by a drunk driver. She couldn't understand why God didn't forgive her because it was not her fault she died before she could accept Christ. It was the drunk's fault. Mary said she was alive for a few days in a hospital and she could hear her mother and father praying for her, but she could not do anything about it because she could not answer or move. Mary remembered them saying she was brain dead and that the doctors told her mother and father after three days they would take her off life support if there were no brain waves. Mary could hear all this going on, but couldn't do anything about it. Finally, on the third day, her mother and father were in her hospital room when the doctor came in and talked with her parents and everyone agreed to disconnect her. This scared Mary because she knew she wasn't dead yet and wanted to stay alive as long as possible. Death scared her. Mary watched as her mother and father said goodbye to her and nodded for the nurse in the room to disconnect the life support. From what Mary was saying, I believe she was having an out-of-body experience, or NDE. Mary said she couldn't get any air and felt like she was drowning, and she said everything felt stiff, like she couldn't move any part of her body. Then this evil spirit came and took her to hell. One other person allowed to talk to me was a person from Asia, but I'm not sure which country. He said his name, but I'm not sure how to spell it. It seemed like it was Jung Shohi. He was a jeweler back on earth, and he had a wife, two sons, and a daughter. Jung believed there was no God, no heaven or hell, and was shocked when he had a heart attack and died only to find out there was a hell, and he was trapped there forever. He begged me to tell his wife and children if I could. At that time, I only knew I was staying there forever like him. Why were these people telling me these things? Why did they think I could do anything about their situation? This didn't make sense to me at the time. I knew I was lost forever. I knew I blew my only chance to be with God in heaven. Were these people telling me these things to let me know it's hopeless? The sights in hell are nothing like what has ever been shown to man here on earth. It was worse than any picture or movie I have ever seen. Imagine solid, jagged rock walls with people attached by some invisible force, like being chained up, and these walls go on forever over a million miles in every direction. It is dark. It stinks. The smell of rotten flesh and garbage mixed with sulfur smell and heat so hot that your flesh would melt off its bones. That is just a little idea of what hell is like. You get there. You don't leave. Imagine everything I described about hell and then add the torture you go through all the time. You never get a break not even for a minute. These evil spirits are there to torture you, and they get such pleasure out of it. The biggest pleasure they get is when they know you fell for their lie here on earth 
that they were going to take care of you, that Satan was powerful and he would protect you and give you all these wonderful treasures when you die. Yes, they love it when you believe all that. People who believe in Buddha, Muhammad, or other gods, demons laugh at that because those gods were made up by Satan himself to satisfy man, to trick them into believing a lie so he could have them forever. They also loved those who didn't believe in God while they were living, because when you go to hell, it is too late, but you will believe in God then. Our spirits look a lot like our fleshly bodies. We seem the same way, but different. This is too difficult to explain in our earthly language or too difficult for our brains to comprehend. Not everything in the spirit, in heaven or hell, can be described because it can only be experienced after we leave our earthly bodies behind. With that being said, hell is worse than having someone break every inch of every bone in your body, inch by inch, one bone at a time, slowly, so it takes a whole month to do it. Yes, hell is worse than that. The demons are tearing you apart, but you don't come apart. You only rip and tear but you stay together. This pain is horrible. I watched as some demons were tearing apart a young lady, maybe 18 to 20 years of age. She was a beautiful young lady at one time, yet these demons have tortured her for over 400 years and they have never stopped. It is not something you can ever get used to. Our spirits are not like our earthly brain. We can't reason or rationalize things because we don't need to anymore. This is final. Imagine having someone tie your hands up to two different car bumpers and your feet at two different car bumpers and then your head tied up to another car bumper. All at once, all the cars start pulling you apart in all different directions, but you never come apart and you can't pass out. You just suffer the pain over and over again, forever and forever. That would be like a vacation in hell, because that's not even close to a minor pain there. I saw something else there that was interesting to me in hell. I saw demons fighting over who gets to torture someone. They seem to do this a lot, especially over people who claim to be Christians on earth, but hid stuff about their real activities. I called them fake Christians, because they claim to be a Christian, but their walk with God is nothing like Christ. They were only satisfied with pleasing themselves. That is one of the biggest lies Satan has Christians believing. It's okay to want and desire things. It's okay to have an affair. God will forgive you. It's okay to steal. You need the clothes or food. It's okay to cheat on that test. You studied hard and others are cheating. It's okay to spend your money on whatever you like. You don't need to give to the Lord. It's okay to satisfy yourself. Everyone does. And the list goes on and on. The biggest lies are once saved, always saved, and extreme grace. This is spreading at an alarming rate in the world today. These lies are sending more people to hell than atheism. God does forgive you of your sins. 
But if you keep sinning, you don't get a get-out-of-hell-free card. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9-10, to 10, quote, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. End quote. I think that makes it pretty clear. Demons or evil spirits cannot be described in human words, but they are real. They do exist. There are demons in every part of this world. They were at one time angels or some other host of heaven, but they were thrown out with Lucifer or Satan. Lucifer was one of the most powerful angels at one time, and he was beautiful, but he was cast out because of his pride. He wanted to become like God, and almost a third of the heavenly hosts were cast out with him. That does not mean they were all angels, because heaven has all kinds of beings in it, not just angels. Demons became so ugly and strong, because they have been here on earth for thousands or millions of years, yet they still have the strength they had in heaven, and they have been in hell a long time. Think about living in hell for thousands of years, and knowing it will be millions and millions and billions of years, and then eternity. You will never get out. That is why the demons are like they are. At one time, they may have been beautiful creatures or beings living in heaven, but now being doomed to hell forever has changed them. Here is a shock for you. Over one half of all people going to hell didn't believe in hell before they died. They thought everyone would go to heaven and that hell was what we lived like on earth, or what we made of life here on earth. People who believe in gods like statues, rocks, idols, Buddhists, Muslims, Hindus, etc., are all living a lie, and when they die, they are going to be so shocked to find out that there really is a heaven and hell, and there really is a God. God is not like a rock or a statue. Buddha or Muhammad. He is God, the I Am, the only living God who always has been and always will be, none before and none after Him. You don't have to take my word for this. It's in the Bible. Or you can wait till you go to hell, and then you will know what I am telling you is correct. But then it will be too late. The longer I was staying there in hell, People were grabbing a hold of me, biting me, and screaming at me. Different demons were now attaching themselves to me as well. I could feel them pulling from different directions while the one main spirit continued to hold on to my left wrist. He continually yelled at me, making fun of me, and telling me that I was a loser, just like I was always told I would be. I knew now that I was lost for sure. There was no return. I was lost. And to think I had all those chances to turn things around and change my life. But my own self-satisfaction was too important to me. I thought what a fool I had been. I was truly trapped. And now would have to pay the price for all eternity.
Chapter 6 Arriving in Heaven All of a sudden, I heard a voice like a mighty roar of thunder that said, It is not his time yet. His mother has been praying for him since he was a little boy. You must release him now. I made a promise. The evil spirit that had hold of me released me immediately, and I seemed to just fly through space upward and out of hell in seconds. Suddenly, there was bright lights everywhere. Everything glowed. I felt like I had never felt before. Wonderful feelings all through my being. Not only did I now have hope, I knew I was in the presence of a heavenly being. I was just outside of this beautiful place, just outside a gate. The gate looked like it was made of pearls, and it radiated in beauty. But the light that came from it and from the city inside the gate was unbelievable. It was a light that is not only seen, but that penetrates every aspect of your being. The feeling that came over me was so euphoric that nothing in life was sad anymore. I could only feel joy and happiness, no sorrow of any kind. At this time, there was nothing holding on to me like in hell, and I had freedom to move around. So, I started to go into the gate. As I moved closer, an angel appeared to me and told me I could not stay in heaven. I also now know that my mother's prayers weren't the main reason I didn't stay in hell. I didn't stay in hell because it wasn't my time to die. Hell was a glimpse of what would have been my fate if I didn't change. And now, since I had not changed and given my life to the Lord yet, I had been taken to heaven only to observe and then tell people on earth about what I saw. I could see everything inside the gates, and I could feel everything everyone else felt, but I wasn't allowed to stay or run around and do things I would have liked. The angel that stopped me at the gate was a massive being, much like a human but larger than life. He had hair down to his shoulders and was wearing some type of white gown that seemed to glow. His hair was sort of very light brown to a dark blonde, and by earthly standards of measurement, I would say he was about seven feet tall. When he spoke to me, he had the gentlest voice, yet every word had such power with it. It was clear to me at that point how powerful words are, and I instantly thought about the power of God's words when he speaks. It became easy for me to understand how the whole universe was made just by his spoken word. When we die, there is an odd thing that happens. You instantly know things. Everything you ever needed to know, you now know. It would be kind of like being given an entire encyclopedia and knowing everything in it in less than a second. No one has to tell you anything or describe anything to you. You just know it through your whole being. Our spirit, as I have learned, doesn't have a brain to mess things up. We get the same thinking capacity as heavenly beings have without our brains trying to analyze everything first. You just know it and accept it. This beautiful angel began to tell me some things about my life and what I need to do when I get back on earth. When he spoke to me, I understood everything 
and knew exactly what I was supposed to do when I was sent back. Yet, I wanted to stay. Many things he told to me, or showed me, I could not discuss with you yet, as I was told to keep them to myself until a time when I will be told it's okay to share it. However, there are some things I can share with you at this time. First, I saw my father in a hospital room. The room was painted a pale yellow, and my dad's bed was to the right of the room. There was an older woman there whom I did not recognize, as well as a few other people. My dad was lying in the bed with his eyes closed when he suddenly sat straight up, pointing at me and said, I did it to you. I did it to you. This scared me, and I asked why I had to see this, and the angel spoke to me about generational curses and sin on earth, and told me when I get back to earth, I will need to break that curse and sin. The generational curse is a link to your past, before you were born. It goes to the third or fourth generation, and sometimes even further, depending on what it is and when it began. I was given several gifts in heaven. One gift is to be able to see inside a person, deep into their soul or spirit. This is not something that I turn on or off, nor can I select the person I can see into. That is up to God. This is not just reserved for church. It happens all the time, at work, play, shopping, or anywhere I go. I know it sounds kind of freaky, but it was given to me for a reason. When God gives you a gift, whether it may be singing, teaching, preaching, a kind spirit, a pleasant voice, no matter what it is, use it. God gives us all different gifts, and I know it hurts Him when He sees people who won't use what He gave them, or use it for the wrong purpose. But His gifts are irrevocable. What I see is the person's spirit, especially during times of worship. There are many things I see that I never say to a person unless the Holy Spirit gives me the go-ahead. That's just how it works. I was also shown things about the future. I saw what seemed like millions of people connected to each other with these things at desks and on their laps, and they were typing on them. Remember now, this was back in the 70s, and personal computers and laptops did not exist back then. I saw people all over the world connected by something like a big net linking them to each other. People could connect with other people and talk to them through these devices and see the other person on their little TVs. In 1978, many of these things seemed very strange to me. People were walking around talking to each other on phones that had no wires attached, and later with these little things stuck in the air, and then later in time people were talking into thin air. Nothing I could see was attached to them. Then it was shown to me that they had this little device that had been implanted inside their ear with a little machine, and all they had to do was tap on the back or bottom of their ear and say a person's name, and they could talk to that person. There was another device that looked like a small, flat TV that was very thin that people walked around with, talking to it, 
and typing on it. There were many people who were all alone, walking and looking at these little phones or flat TVs, typing on them, talking into them. So many people had forgotten how to really communicate, and this was all part of the devil's plan to get control of people, because if they forgot how to communicate verbally, then they would forget how to pray as well. Connect and keep them in touch with machines instead of people. I also saw buildings in space circling the earth, as well as other things I will discuss as I am given permission to do so. During this time, it was also revealed to me that our nation would go through some very difficult problems, almost to the point of no return. But Christians all across the country started praying and taking action to turn it around. Some were persecuted for their stance, yet it did not stop the Christians from moving forward. As the angel spoke to me and showed me certain things, I saw so much that I really had no concept of once I returned to my body. But I do know that it all made sense to me at the time. When the angel spoke of things, my awareness was clear, and it was easy to understand. I remember that, but once I came back into my body, my mind couldn't grasp it. Even the things in hell made sense while I was there, but when I returned to my body, I had confusion about some things because I couldn't understand all of them with my brain. It just doesn't function as well as our spiritual being or mind does. It took a lot of prayer and the Holy Spirit to help make things clear. It is impossible to express how I felt while being in heaven. It was a euphoric feeling all the time. And speaking of time, there never seemed to be time. Now I understand where it says in the Bible, a thousand years are like a day. Time really has no meaning in heaven. Time is something that was made for man here on earth, so he could keep records of things he did and when. God's timing is perfect, and no calendar or clock can tell you when that is going to be. Yes, we have precise times and dates when the Lord says to do certain things, or to show up at particular places at specified times. But that is just for us here on earth. Time means nothing in heaven. There isn't day or night. It just always is. Now, I want to tell you what I saw in heaven. Most of my time was spent with this angel, but I did have time to look around some. What I noticed was that the light in heaven was everywhere. There were no shadows, no dark spots in heaven. I saw many huge homes, not like homes here in the United States, but huge structures made with pure white stone of some kind. The streets may have been gold, but the shiniest pure gold you have ever seen. There was a river flowing through heaven, and the water was so clean and pure that it almost looked like nothing was in the river at first. The sound of the water was like little children laughing and singing. Every noise I heard in heaven made me smile and filled me with joy. There were trees in heaven, two very big, beautiful trees right next to the river running through heaven. On one tree, there was one kind of fruit, 
and on the other tree there was a different kind of fruit. Many stopped and looked up at the trees, but I did not see anyone picking fruit off of either tree. The leaves on the trees were like huge magnolia trees, but much bigger. They were about three or more feet long, and the branches stretched out for what seemed to be miles. Now, let me explain something here. Because there is no real concept of time, space, or distance in heaven and hell, I am just trying to take what I saw and put it in perspective so you can understand. When you die, all these things will become clear because your mind will not be there to interfere with what your spirit knows and comprehends. Our mind is only capable of understanding what we feed it, much like a computer, except that unlike a computer, we can try to reason with things and make some changes, but still only with what we already know. In our spirit, we have the ability to understand things that are way beyond our finite minds. We can grasp things of the universe that as humans we have not yet seen, nor can we see or understand, until we die and are in the spirit. Many things I saw I cannot convey in words. I can't even begin to tell you what they were or even how to describe them. Our minds are limited, but our spirits are not. I'm sure most of you have heard of the book of Revelation in the Bible. What John saw cannot be described completely in words, though he tries so hard to explain things. I am sure everything he wrote was 100% accurate. But if it was someone from today writing of those same visions, maybe it would be described differently because of things that have been invented since then. And what Ezekiel saw, perhaps that would be described differently today. When I saw what I now recognize as computers, tablets, and laptops, I thought there were little flat TVs with some kind of flat typewriters connected to them or tablets with an electronic typewriter inside it. And laptops were the strangest looking things to me, as well as tablets. What I found so odd about laptops and tablets was that people had these things with them all over the place, and no electricity was hooked up to many of them. People had them with them outside, by a lake, out on a boat, in the woods, all over. As I stated earlier on, I had no idea what a computer was because they didn't have home computers or laptops back then. Chapter 7 Angels, Music, and More In heaven, I learned that there are many different types of angels. One type of angel is much like you and me. They are about the same size as our spirits, and they look like us. These angels are given unique assignments to specific people, and they can be assigned more than one person at a time. I call them helper angels. They are there to help you through different things in your life on earth. They can transform into looking just like you if need be. There are also guardian angels. They are usually assigned to one person at a time, and they are there to physically guard you from harm. You have heard people tell stories about how they were heading into an accident that couldn't be avoided, and the next thing they knew, 
they were outside of the accident, unharmed. That is because of these guardian angels. Sometimes, though, these angels cannot perform their assignment because the person they are watching over has done something to where the angel can't do their job anymore. I will try to explain more on this later. There are also angels with feathers, or winged angels. They are usually sent with a particular message to bring to a person or group of people. For example, winged angels were the ones who announced Jesus' birth, and they are the ones mentioned many times in the Bible who give someone a message from God. I'm sure most of you have heard about angels that show up at places in different churches around the world. That is usually this type of angel. There are also other very important angels that don't have wings that can also bring messages to people. It's just that most messengers are winged angels. There are angels whose only assignment is to take answers to prayers back to you. When you pray for something, these angels will be the ones to give you the answers directly from heaven. Some of these angels have been seen, but mostly they are unseen as they carry the message or answer to your prayer. They are very common and are ascending and descending all the time, 24 hours around the clock. These angels can't make you accept the answers they bring back. That is determined by your will and choice. Archangels are the biggest and most powerful angels. They usually have one assignment at a time, and that assignment usually changes life as we know it here on earth. When you come into the presence of an archangel, you can feel its power. You know they represent God firsthand. The power they possess can actually change the course of time and events here on earth. If you saw an archangel here on earth, it would scare you to death. But in heaven, your spirit understands this power and that its power comes from God, not to be feared in heaven. There were very few archangels that I saw. Only three of them were visible to me. I also saw angels whose only purpose is to worship God. They just sing praises to God, and their voices are, well, angelic. There is no other way to explain it. Their voices combined together would make anyone hearing it feel euphoric. I saw many more angels there. I didn't know their specific purposes. I only understood the few I just described. There are just so many things that can be understood in the Spirit that can never be put into words through the processes of one's mind because the human brain simply can't comprehend it. The music in heaven is not like what we heard in churches back while I was growing up or even in the new contemporary music back in the 70s. It was more like chants and praises. I can tell you that songs like Holy that Jesus culture sings and some music from Elevation and other groups now is more like what you hear in heaven, but without the heavy electric guitar. It is total worship. The kind of music is all praise music, not like the old rugged cross or hymns. Everything is happy and praise-style sounds. Think about it. You are in heaven. God and Jesus are there. 
and you have everything you could ever want or need. So why not praise? Since I have been back on earth, nothing moves me more than music now, because I know the source of praise, and I am constantly seeking that beautiful sound I heard while I was in heaven. Here on earth, we get tired of things in a short time, but in heaven, the people there are so full of the Spirit of God, because they are completely spirit and have no fleshly mind to tire them out or bring them down, that it's 24-7 praise and worship. I tried a lot of different drugs back in the 70s, and there wasn't anything that could give you even one one millionth of a percent of a high like you get in heaven. Without your flesh to hold you back or to bring thoughts of sinful things into your mind, there is nothing but praise and worship left in you. Your spirit wells up and you just start singing and praising God. Some music made me want to jump up and shout, while other times it was simply soothing and melodious to the spirit. I heard music that was so soft and gentle that it would just float through my spirit as if it were a gentle breeze caressing me the whole time. No one in heaven sings off-key. Everyone has perfect pitch. Our voices go up as one when we sing there. Though we all sing different parts, bass, tenor, alto, and soprano, it all blends together as one voice. And something I was so excited about is that we do actually get to sing with the angels. The feeling you have when you are in heaven is something that you don't ever want to go away. You never want to leave heaven. I'm bringing this up again because I feel it's important to know that feelings are part of our spirit, not just our physical bodies. How many times have you heard people say, you can't just go on feelings? In heaven, that is not true. You can go just on feelings because your spirit doesn't have a fleshly mind like it does on earth. Your spirit hears, thinks, tastes, feels, and smells throughout your whole being, so feelings are hard to ignore once you have experienced dying and being in the spirit. Feelings in heaven are the norm. Here on earth, they tell you not to trust your feelings because your flesh has sin in it, you have to understand, what we have on earth that we can see or figure out with our minds are only things of the flesh. But the spiritual world is more alive, even here, than you can see. Spirits in this world are not all from God. There are many false spirits and many very evil spirits. Most of the time you can tell when someone has the Spirit of God in them and you can tell when someone is evil. But when you die and experience it firsthand, you have a much greater awareness and knowledge of spiritual things when you come back to earth. It's kind of like the difference between someone who has never cooked a day in their life and a professional chef. Now the chef is experienced, and he or she knows how to prepare, season, and cook the food. But the person who has never cooked might know what those foods are, and they may have tasted them before, but they have no idea how to fix them.
What I'm getting at is this. Once you have experienced something, you have greater knowledge than someone who hasn't. An astronaut can tell you what it is like to experience being in space, but all we can do is imagine it or look at footage on film or video. Until we go there, we really can't experience it. Sure, we can go someplace and have a simulated space experience, but that's not the same thing. I have met a couple other people who have died before and experienced heaven, and they understand immediately what I mean when I say that our earthly minds can't understand, comprehend, or conceive what our spirit knows. Therefore, trust the Spirit of God in you, and don't worry about it. God knows what He is doing. Chapter 8 What Heaven Was Like This is going to be difficult, because nothing we have on earth compares. In heaven, there is no darkness and no shadows of any kind. Imagine light being everywhere. You walk under a tree, and it is just as light as standing out in direct sunlight. You look up through the leaves of the tree, and there are no shadows between the leaves. The light engulfs everything. Because of this, colors look different in heaven, more vibrant and pure. Nothing on earth can compare to the light or colors in heaven and our earthly minds cannot explain or comprehend what it looks like. Some people say the streets are gold, but the reality is it's difficult to say what they are made of because everything there is so shiny and bright. The buildings there appear to be made of some kind of white marble. Inside the houses or mansions, the light is just as bright as it is outside. As I walked around in heaven, I was looking everywhere, including down at my feet. The streets I walked on just glowed like a high-gloss gold, but it didn't feel like gold. It was actually soft. I won't even begin to tell you what the grass or flowers looked like. My brain cannot find the words to describe them, but I can tell you that walking on the grass barefoot was a rush. The grass was so soft, like walking on a cloud. You can float in heaven. All you do is pick your feet up and think about floating, and you do. It's effortless. You could soar as high as any eagle or airplane here on earth, but in heaven is not a big deal. It's like walking. Every movement you make is effortless. You never get tired and you can always be on the move. Oh, how I wish that were true on earth. When you look toward what seems to be the center of heaven, you see this light that surpasses anything you have ever seen. The light has warmth, like the feeling of honey flowing all over you, without the stickiness. You can see forever and hear things that you can never hear on earth. Can you imagine a place where no fear exists, no sickness, no sorrow, no sadness, not any form of depression of any kind? Everyone was happy all the time. In heaven, you instantly know things, like who someone is, 
without anyone saying a thing to you. I saw some of the people from the Bible moving around. I know I saw Elisha, John the Baptist, Matthew, and Luke. I did not speak to any of them. I just saw them going about heaven. You see, I wasn't supposed to be there yet, or at least I wasn't allowed to stay there. The angel stayed with me wherever I went, and I didn't go too far from the gate. I saw many other people too, but we did not talk. It was so great not to have to talk to someone and ask them their name. I just knew it, even if they walked by me. One name sticks out, and I don't know why. She was not anyone from the Bible days or anyone I knew about before. Her name was Esther Remington. I hope someone listening to this will know something about her or why it was important to remember her name. She died when she was old, but she looked so young now. She was a very loving woman on earth. I believe Esther was from California and had died a few years before I arrived in heaven, maybe late 1960s or early 1970s. Once you have actually been to heaven, you have a different outlook on life than anyone else. You see things differently and understand things others cannot. Your passion for life and people is magnified when you come back, and you have an understanding and a compassion you never had before. You know how important it is to talk to people and win souls for the Lord, because after you die, it is too late. I was given several gifts in heaven, but the most awesome gifts any of us can ever have and the only gift you can take with you to heaven is love. Chapter 9 Deeper Experiences in Heaven There was something else I noticed in heaven. Everyone there seemed to know each other, and when someone new came to heaven, there would often be people they had known on earth who greeted them when they arrived. This occurred most of the time, but some people were met by angels and other heavenly hosts. It was exciting to see people getting greeted when they got to heaven. Watching children being met by their parents, or children who had died young meeting their mother or father who died after them. This included children who had been aborted or miscarriage. That was really exciting to see. When a husband would meet his wife, or a wife meet her husband, what joy! No tears, just the joy that floods all of heaven. To answer the question most ask at hearing this, does that mean you're married in heaven? The answer is no. But you do recognize the one you are married to and are happy to see them just like anyone else in your family. There are beings in heaven other than God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, us, and the angels. There are other heavenly beings that I find too difficult to describe and others that I will attempt to give my best description. There are beings that walk around heaven just praising the Lord. They look like nothing we have on earth to compare them with, but they are beautiful and sing with power and authority. They go around heaven making sure that praises of God are being lifted up in every section of heaven. They are human-like 
with big, beautiful eyes, and they have small, chubby legs and arms, kind of like a chubby little baby with a rather big mouth. They just seem to float around in heaven as they sing. There was one being that I could not get close enough to, which makes it difficult for me to describe it very well to you, but it had many eyes on it. In fact, thousands of eyes or more all over its body and wings. I could see the eyes going back and forth, as if looking for something or someone. And although at the time I understood clearly the purpose, now I am unsure what it was. This being was much further in toward the middle of heaven. Closer toward what I would call the center of heaven was this very bright light, brighter than our sun, but it did not hurt me to look at it. It was kind of like looking at lightning, so pure and white. The feeling I got when I gazed at that light was so pure and overwhelming with nothing but love, a love like I had never before experienced. I felt like I was being drawn to it, like it just pulled at everything inside me to go to it, but I was not allowed to go that far because I had not done what I needed to do on earth to be allowed up there to stay. I wish I could somehow convey the feeling that came over me. It was so powerful and soothing at the same time. I knew that I was in the presence of the Holy of Holies in heaven. I can remember the sounds, smells, and feelings of heaven as I walked around there. It's something I will never forget as long as I live. I recall the laughter, singing, praises, and beautifulness of everything and everybody. If you are listening to this and you are not a Christian, I strongly suggest you make a change in your life here on earth because this life goes by in just a snap of the fingers and your afterlife is forever. I am not talking about just as long as a hundred years or so, but for all eternity forever and ever. That's longer than it would take you to walk around the world a million times. In fact, that would be less than a second in heaven. Get my point? This is real. Heaven and hell are the final destinations. And my question is, which one do you want to be in forever? I'm not trying to get religious on you. I'm trying to save your life. Think about it while you finish listening to this book. There were some other things I was shown in heaven about the future of our earth. There were people on earth who were there strictly to corrupt the world, the leaders, and the common people. These people were possessed of a spirit that leads people into false hopes and delusions. Many people on earth believed these leaders as they convinced the people of earth that everything would be good for them if they just trusted them. As we know today in the United States, this is very much like the leaders of the Democrat Party. There is a great socialist Marxist group that is trying to bring in communism to the United States, disguised as socialists or the party that wants to give away everything for free. This far-left party is trying to take over the Democrat Party and will pull in some members of the Republican Party by lying to them 
and trying to make deals with them. I saw this from heaven, and it is happening now, and will go on for some time. Homosexuality was coming to a peak in the future, where it seemed the majority of people were accepting it, and the ones who didn't were actually being persecuted and prosecuted in many parts of the world. The LGBTQ and other groups have infiltrated all segments of Hollywood, our education system, and many churches. It is a lie from the pit of hell. LGBTQ is an agenda to eventually bring in pedophilia and other sex agendas as being normal. This angered God. The other spirit that was entering into people caused them to lust after children, and parents gave their children away to others who said they loved their children. Some parents even sold their children to these evil and vile people. Not only were men seeking these children, but women too. Some wanted to perform homosexual acts on these children, and others heterosexual sexual acts on them. This was being accepted in many parts of the world, and it greatly angered God too. What you must understand is I saw these things back in 1978, long before any of this was known on earth. What I saw people doing in the future to children made me so sick that I almost can't even write about it. They are actually raising children up for these sick and disgusting practices. Women are having children to be raised as sex slaves, and they are programmed or brainwashed into the world from day one. They are taught not to believe anyone except their handler. Some children are being raised just to be sacrificed. There was another spirit of lust that was prevalent in the world, and that was a lust for power and control. This lust came out of the Middle East and was spreading around the world at an alarming rate. It was disguised as a form of religion and relied heavily on recruiting young people believing in the lies they were told of wonderful places and experiences they would have if they just obeyed. It was the ultimate mind control of our youth. An army was being raised to take over the world, one place at a time, but wearing down all the earth as much as possible. Many of these were little children. From the time of their birth, they were told that Christians were the enemy. Some of these children attended schools that taught them not to love anyone who was not of their faith, but to hate them. However, this spirit of lust for control and power will never be successful because the Spirit of God will not allow it, and the people of this earth will eventually revolt. I saw Israel standing alone. Many nations had separated themselves from Israel, yet Israel had done nothing wrong to deserve it. Even the United States was taking action that harmed Israel. I saw many European nations take a stand against Israel as well. All these European nations and the United States finally turned things around, but only after some damage was already done. These nations changed their minds after they realized that they had been lied to and used. I saw lies, lies, and more lies coming out of the Middle East. Israel was the only nation telling the truth. 
you will see that some of the Middle East countries will back off of Israel, but some will not. There will be some real peace in parts of the Middle East that seems impossible, but it will come. First by one nation, then a next, and a next, and so on. Be very cautious of Iran and Syria, as in the future Russia and China will try to use them. Many of the things I saw then in my visit to heaven have now come to pass and have angered God. The people of the earth need a wake-up call, and that is coming soon. There will be great storms, earthquakes, and many more natural disasters that will occur not just in the United States, but in the entire world. Remember, these things were revealed to me back in 1978 before the big 9.0 earthquake struck Japan and the tsunamis and the worst typhoon in recorded history that hit the Philippine Islands. I can tell you that these events are just the beginning, but those who are solid in the Lord and really do put Him first will be warned. The angel showed me that there are a few people on earth right now that know about these things and that they are the intercessors praying for our country. These are not necessarily the big evangelists or TV preachers, but regular individuals who are the intercessors on their face before the Lord daily. Now, there are going to be some major preachers who are going to finally stand up against this filth and immorality, but that time is still to come. I was not to know the exact times when these things would happen, but I am certainly aware that it has started. Another thing that was shown to me was the spirit of deception within the church, accompanied by the spirit of self-righteousness. There were people of all religions belonging to churches who were going around trying to divide up the church in order to satisfy their own righteousness. They would go to other individuals in the church and spread lies and rumors about certain ministers in the church, attacking the pastors and worship leaders. These rumors would spread like wildfire. Even those who knew better would start believing because the spirit of deception was so strong and the people of the church were not prayed up enough to know the difference. Satan is well aware that if he can divide the church, he can conquer it and steal people away. However, this too will come to a stop by the power of the Holy Spirit. The people trying to do this will be exposed, and they will be accountable for the ones they led astray unless they repent. Something else the angel talked to me about was hidden intentional sin. These are sins that people who claim to be Christians do frequently on a regular basis. Let me explain. If you are a Christian, you know right from wrong from the Holy Spirit indwelling within you. But if you think that right and wrong are only what other people see in you, you are deceiving yourself. What has been happening is that many people are claiming one thing and behind closed doors are doing another. If you are looking at porn, treating your family badly, cheating on your spouse, are into violent or graphic gaming, using illegal drugs, or abusing prescription drugs, 
or drinking alcoholic beverages daily, and you are hiding these things, then that is your hidden intentional sin. These are not the only ones. There are many more, like aggravating your children, lusting after your fellow co-worker, cussing, anything that you would not do in front of Jesus if he were standing next to you. Doing these things over and over again when you know it is wrong, that is intentional sinning. Hidden intentional sinning has become one of the worst epidemics in the Christian community. It surpasses anything close to it by a mile. The angel said that this displeases God greatly, and he wants it made known. He said that if people do not repent, then he will expose them, from the top evangelist on down to the quietest person at church. I want to further elaborate that I am not talking about sin that is unintentional. I am talking about sin that you know is wrong, yet you intentionally choose to repeat the behavior. You are not fooling anyone but yourself. Believe it or not, many times people know that you are doing it, but they don't say anything because they don't want to embarrass you. Don't you think you are going to hate it when it is exposed to everyone and they all find out what you are doing? I mean, what if you are beating your spouse, looking at porn, or lusting after someone while you are married? Do you really want that exposed? Do you? For me, it's a little different. I have been charged with warning you because I have been there and you don't want to go to hell. I am being sent with this warning. Either you repent and change your ways, or it will be exposed. The time for you to take heed to what I am saying is now. You have been warned by listening to this book. Let me ask you a question. If you saw a three-year-old child walking along the side of the road, and they turn to walk directly into oncoming traffic going 75 miles per hour, what would you do? Would you just keep driving away, looking in the other direction, and hope someone else will stop and help them? Or think maybe they will magically make it through to the other side? I would be willing to bet most of you would come to a screeching halt, jump out of your car, and rescue them. That is what I am doing by warning you about this. This is the most stoppable sin there is, because you already know it's wrong, and you know the right way to go. So please stop before it's too late. You have no idea how many people I saw in hell who didn't belong there, or at least they didn't think they did. Hidden intentional sin has been rampant for many years now and getting worse every day especially with all the new technology continually coming out. In the near future, this technology will even produce human-like forms that will be part of the worst lusts the world has ever seen. Chapter 10 Back to Earth So many things we don't know here on Earth will all be revealed to us when we get to heaven. I can tell you there is no sorrow, no pain, and no regret in heaven. I wish I could explain everything as I saw it and felt it. 
but it is beyond what the human mind can comprehend. When you get to heaven, you will not be worrying about your children or other loved ones here on earth, because you will be in the presence of God, and that is something that just can't be explained. I do want to tell you more about why I was spared from hell, and it has nothing to do with me or my cries for help while in hell. The real reason I didn't stay in hell was because it wasn't my time to die. As I said before, my experience in hell was a glimpse of where I would have ended up if I didn't change and give my life to Jesus. The angel that spoke to me in heaven also told me that God was honoring my mother's prayers because she had been so faithful to God in her life and had said over 20,000 prayers for me, and God made her a promise about her children. She prayed for me two to three times daily. Can you imagine being prayed for 20,000 times? My mother is a godly woman and brought all of her children up in the ways of the Lord and in church. The paths we took may not have been right, but she knew that if she raised us in the ways of the Lord, we would all return someday if we drifted away. Mom, you were right about that one. This angel explained to me that everyone who goes to hell cries out for God, but that it is too late for them. My escape from hell was one in a million, and it wasn't because of anything I did on earth or how I lived. It's because it wasn't my time to die and because of my mother's prayers. Parents, never stop praying for your children. Even when it looks impossible, keep praying for them and never give up. When the angel was finished telling me things, it allowed me to stand just inside the gates and view what heaven was like for some time. Oh, I did not want to leave. I didn't want to go back to earth. This was so beautiful and wonderful. The music that you hear literally goes through you. You feel the music and the singing. It pierces every part of your being. And it is so beautiful and uplifting. I thought, please God, I don't want to go back to earth. But I could not stay there because I had to change my life in order to get back to heaven. And I had a job to do. Write this book. The final thing the angel told me was, you must wait to tell about your experience until you are told to do so. I understand that this was a warning and I also knew that my life was not where it was supposed to be and that I needed to turn things around. Back to earth I went, and in a blink of an eye, I was entering my bedroom. There in the room were two paramedics who had just arrived. One paramedic was feeling my neck for a pulse, and he shook his head looking back over his right shoulder to the other paramedic standing behind him. The man behind him was getting something out of a medical bag while the one who checked my pulse was getting ready to turn me onto my back as I was lying on my left side facing toward a wall. Just then my spirit moved into my body and started to wake it up. It shook my body violently, vibrating like I had just been hit with electricity, and it actually scared the paramedics. All of a sudden, I was able to breathe and I opened my eyes 
and stared straight at this surprised paramedic. I will never forget the look on his face as he asked, Are you all right? in a startled voice. I replied that I was, though I was in some kind of shock because I was back in my body here on earth. It was difficult for me to speak or move much at first. They insisted on checking me thoroughly, and after about twenty minutes or so, they could not find anything wrong with me, and they left. First, though, they tried to get me to go with them to the hospital, but I refused to go. I was aware that something significant had occurred, and I was trying my best to sort it all out, but wasn't afraid to stay at home. I knew nothing else would happen to me. By the way, I did say a quick, short prayer. Lord, forgive me of my sins. I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Amen. I could not sleep the rest of that night. I didn't want to smoke any more pot or do anything except sit there and wonder about what just happened to me. The paramedics had told me that my girlfriend called around 11.40 p.m., and they got there in about five minutes. My body was cold to the touch and blue. I had no pulse and wasn't breathing. I was dead. They also told me that they had never seen anyone do what I did when I came back to life, vibrating like I did. It startled them. I was trying to wake my body up, shake it, whatever I had to do, because it was so stiff and I couldn't breathe. I sat up all night in a little avocado green rocking chair, crying my eyes out to God. It was the most emotional time I have had in my life. I cried because I was so sorry for what I had done wrong and so glad that God gave me a second chance, a real second chance. The next morning about six, I got up and went to the hospital to see the doctor who had been treating me for the blood clot. I arrived there around 6.30 a.m., no traffic at all at that time in the morning in Grand Rapids, Michigan. The doctor had an office that he used for consultations at the hospital, and I sat on the floor waiting till he came in so I could talk to him. A little after seven, the doctor arrived, and I asked him if I could please talk to him before he started his rounds. He agreed, and we went into his office as I started to tell him what happened to me. You have to understand, I was scared to death, thinking I was going nuts or something. I talked for what seemed like over an hour as the doctor listened to me with such interest. Then I asked him, Am I nuts, or did this really happen to me? I did not tell the doctor details, just general information like being in hell and seeing horrible things and then being in heaven and seeing angels, etc. I can remember the doctor clearly telling me, What happened to you, I believe, was real. I am not saying that you just think it is real. I am saying it really happened. He went on to tell me that he'd had a couple patients who had died and come back to life, and they told him things similar to what I told him, except they had not gone to hell. I was the first to tell him about hell. He also explained that the clot was so big that he had worried it when the blood was thinned out that some of the clot would move into my heart or my lungs. That was the reason they had kept me at the hospital for two weeks. 